Hello, you're very welcome to this episode of FNI Rap Chat. Uh, we mentioned a couple of times uh, now that we are moving to uh, Head Stuff. We're very happy with that. Uh, it's going to give us the opportunity to really improve our audio setup. Uh, they have a wonderful studio in the centre of Dublin. Uh, so we'll have a great place to meet with our guests. And uh, yeah, it's going to just really open things up for us. And we're really uh, happy and excited uh, that head, head Stuff are taking us on. Uh, so this episode is... Uh, Colin McKeown and Paul went to, out to his house a few weeks ago um, and recorded a really really interesting interview with him uh, such a nice guy um, so yeah it'll be one of the last ones of this style where we're kind of running around with our task cam and just picking up interviews wherever we can um, we will probably still be doing that but we hope to improve our audio setup and all that for for these kind of mobile episodes um but uh yeah colin really nice guy uh, a lot of experience um if you look at his imdb he's produced and uh directed a lot um he talks a lot about the creative side of being a producer which is often kind of overlooked i think and uh it's it's really interesting and it's kind of really good to hear that side of things um so yeah uh we have uh a new development that we uh you can buy us a coffee so buy me a coffee.com forward slash f and i uh to help support f and i and uh the endeavors that they take in putting on events and classes uh they're even looking into getting a kind of a, a short script commission um and that's one of the things they really want to get going uh this podcast of court course is part of f and i uh so if you enjoy the podcast or you enjoy any of the events that f and i put on um you can just throw a few quid uh at buymeacoffee.com forward slash f and i uh, and yeah if you have any news hit us up on the facebook page or twitter uh, or the email is fniraptchat at gmail.com. Uh, so, yeah, uh, we hope you enjoy this chat with Colin McKeown. Thanks a million for coming in. You, Paul. All right. How's it going? Good, as we say in the north. About you. We're about you. All right. Um, so yeah, um, Colin. Um, I'll, I'll just I'll just do a little intro of sorts if I can. Uh, Colin has worked across a variety of different mediums: uh, uh, short film, features, TV, um, and and won awards along the way. Uh, most notably, a BAFTA a couple, uh, couple, couple of years ago at this point. Um, so yeah tell us i'm just going to jump right in and start with like uh, a i suppose an Eamon andrews type question how did film first enter your life what's your early, earliest memory of of film well i always lo- loved being be, like watching movies so and um, being in the audience um like the only reason i make films is for for an audience and I'm sort of making them for myself as an audience. Um, that's what always lead, leads me. So we had um, a little Super 8 projector when we were kids. And um, on Sunday afternoons, you used to pop, 
pulled together neighborhood kids and screen whatever little films we had. In those days, you had to send away by post and get um, one reelers of Lauren and Hardy, the Marx Brothers, because um, they, they were only about 10 or 15 minutes lo long, the little reels you get. Mm -hmm. so, so you'd, you'd pay like a pound for a month to rent one of these and then post them back. <laughs> Our f absolute favourite was uh, Jason and the Argonauts, the Ray Harry Harrison one. Wow. Um, all we got was the the battle of the um, the skeletons. You know that you didn't see the whole of the movie. All you saw was that one scene mm -hmm. and over and over again. So at the same time, my dad had a Super 8 camera, and um, about eight or nine years old, I asked to to make a film, and I got my brothers all rehearsed. We were doing uh, like a v Invisible Man type of thing. Hats on sticks and stuff. Just the invisible planes <laughs> and all that sort of nonsense. And um, it was like nobody did what I wanted them to do. And unfortunately for me, my dad didn't actually make a film of um, of the film. Mm -hmm. He made a documentary of the making of. Uh, which I still have to, to this day, including um, a complete meltdown. Of, <laughs> Of, of, of Christian Bale proportions, yeah, of the of the director completely melting down. So um, yeah, and then as I've come from that generation, we're like um, we did not have access to this stuff. You know, Super Eight was was expensive and um, it was di difficult to you know. We did have a little a little cut, cutting machine, but you couldn't really do sound effectively with it. Mm -hmm. So there was an amazing um, shift when I was a teenager and um, VHS came along. I had a, a few uh, amazing, amazing shifts as a teenager as well, of a different variety. Uh -huh. <laughs> While you were making films. Uh, sorry, I couldn't resist that really awful joke. Uh, go on. Yeah, so... <laughs> This estate agent in our town had. Where, where did you grow up? Sorry, in County Armagh. In Armagh, okay. Uh, between sort of Port Down, Lurg, and Armagh in the countryside, and then um, this guy got a. He he got a very early VHS camera, which had like a, it had about a two inch thick thick um, cable that went to a separate VHS play, player recorder. And he used to, he was an estate agent, so he used to video the houses that he had for sale so he could show them on tape to people as opposed to drag them around there all the time. Very ahead of his time. Yeah, so we used to borrow it on weekends, my cousins and my friends, and, and we would do, I had lots of books of scripts, and mostly Monty Python or uh, comedy scripts, like not the 9 o'clock news, and so we'd rehearse those and we'd just perform them, and then we started making our own. Mm. And um, so a couple of years after that, I was about 16, and we got one of the smaller VHS ones. It was this little handheld um, thing. It took a full-size VHS tape. And I just shot and I shot and I shot and cut. And it was like my own film school. It was, the, it was just... Uh, very very rudimentary two VHS players together press pl record play to do the editing mm -hmm. really really basic but 
I, I shot and I shot and I shot for about 18 months and um, put together a compilation of very silly um, or like they're really embarrassing um, <laughs> but um, what had also happened is that we didn't really have much access to cine- cinema either there was very few cinemas around but Channel 4 came on stream mm. in my early teens and I used to put on I just used to tape everything I could get my hands on from them and they showed like the history of cinema like like 20 Jean-Luc Godard films in a month or Truffaut or Orson Welles or just it was the rep cinemas that people had in the 60s -hmm. that cinema world came into our TV through Channel 4 and it was an amazing experience. And again, it was like another film school thing yeah. that you'd only saw photographs of in books. And finally, you got the chance to see them. Mm-hmm. And one night, I saw a razor head. Ah, okay, lunch. And that absolutely connected with me. Up until then, I sort of thought I was going to write and act. And then, soon, as soon as I saw that, it connected with me, where I went, I can do that. And that's amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I understand what this is. Um, and it was life-changing. I was like, okay, or that's what I want to do. Uh, that was very clearly the moment for me. It was like, I'd read about this film for ages. The lovely Danny Perry book, uh, Cult Movies. I've, I've, um, you know, I've broken the spine on it and the pages are falling out reading it so many times. Mm-hmm. But um, it was one of the rare films from that collection that you got to see. And finally it was like, oh, wow. It all makes sense now. And so it was also because I was able to, with this little VHS camera, go out and it cost nothing to go and make make stuff. Um, I mean, I'm really, really great to see what's happening now because... Of the, you know what you call the digital monkeys. This generation, you've got access to mm-hmm. really low uh, cost equipment, and um, it's just great that you can go out and you can you can make stuff. Yeah, it provides it certainly provides much more much more content, but it's good. You know, it's you know trial by error really. Well, the big shift is happening obviously. So like. No one could see the stuff that I made. Yeah. And I was very blessed that the very lovely Mick Hannigan, the Cork Film Festival, decided to screen some of it um, <laughs> when I was 16. Should I ask what year this was? 1986. Wow. And um, to this day, I'm really grateful for Mick um, giving me that space. I mean, it is all dreadful. Um but there was a review, I think, in the Irish Times at the time that referred to the shocking sexuality of Irish teenagers, because <laughs> there was um, stuff stuff in it which was a bit surprising. But anyway, um, yeah, that was so that like that was the only pl- place where anybody might see it would be a, a film festival. There wasn't there wasn't sc- regular screenings, and it was never going to get anywhere. Um, and that's the other amazing thing that you have now is that you know you can you, the distributions coming with not just production, uh, but distributions coming into 
your own hands for the first time. And that's yeah. that's really quite quite a massive shift. Now how how it all will progress is, is still to be seen, but the opportunities, you know, first of all to be able to to move from it was impossible when I was a teenager to think that you could really get to make films of any you know, um not very many people from Northern Ireland had, had gone on to do it and it was going to be big and expensive and a, a difficult thing to get into. So um, that shift, first of all, into being able to shoot and edit and stuff yourself was a big change. Mm-hmm. But, but you were never going to be able to get to distribute. You know, that was always going to be... You'd only get so ahead. far before the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, before the shutters came down. So again, one thing I'm really, really pleased about what's happening with this gen- generation is that you've got a the ability to to make stuff, but also you can get it out to people. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you think the the standard of Irish filmmaking over the last, I suppose, you know, twenty years in your experience haven't haven't been working. Has it improved to any great degree, or is it getting better or more interesting? Um, insofar as people stepping away from what they know, the norms, making social dramas, um, you know, the, the old, you know, write what you know adage. Are, are 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 film funding platforms taking more necessary risks? Is the content getting any 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 better or diverse? Uh, in your opinion, or you know, how have we not learned from our experiences uh, up to this point in terms of playing it safe? Well, there's a n- number of pieces to that whole. I mean, the first one is like the idea of a national cinema, of an Irish cinema, mm-hmm. right? Is a sort of retrospective thing. Mm-hmm. It it comes when you add up the catalogue over a number of years. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And so our own present tense of, of moving forward, making things, is re- it's, it's it, we're we're in the middle of the forest, and it's only in the aftermath that we can look back and go, oh, look, there's what was there, and in some sense, I suppose if the funder has mixed things that are you know that um, they look at some idea of the culture, mm-hmm. and then they're stuck also with the market, you know. I mean, if you look at fun- funding applications and and um, you know they're balancing that all the time. The idea of where is the market, where is the cultural aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, in Belfast, um, when I started out in the early nineties, pre the ceasefires, there was absolutely nothing. There was the BBC, a few independents, um, and then post ceasefire, the film industry started to tick tick along a little bit. But the foundations that turned into you know what's described as the biz- biggest set in Western Europe at the moment, and, no- and film in Northern Ireland is now the biggest industry in in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen by accident, and it took a long time for them to get there. But they didn't do it from thinking of a cultural sense of film. Yeah. They looked at it quite clearly. They cut a deal with the government. Uh, and European funding that it would be um, economically driven, mm-hmm. um, and um, well, it's, it's necessary to get you know tourist bums on seats. You know, um, do you think there's 
um, there needs to be more collaboration between Screen and I and the Irish Film Board in particular. Um, it's the old kind of what would the you know if the Republic football team and 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 the the Northern Irish football team got together would would there be a better squad of of players and would would they win the World Cup? Would would should there be more collaboration? In terms of long, a long-term strategy from both of the, both of the organisations to to uh, on individual projects, is there enough co-production going on? Because it seems to me as if they're very standoffish w- with each other, generally speaking. Of course, there's a, there's there's uh, you know there's contradictions to that, obviously. But do you think there's enough being done? Um, I think. At, uh, and what 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 I've been reading over the last ten years is is very um, com- it's very competitive. Mm-hmm. It's as if um, as if the, there's been a rivalry for some time, especially led around the idea of studios. Mm. Um, um, you often see big write ups in the press uh, in which you know. There's a sort of tit for tat. There'll be a big story about how amazing it is up in Belfast, and then it'll follow up somewhere later on with a big story about how amazing it is down here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I believe the minister when he opened up the new studio in um, in Dunleary at the film school, he said something along the lines of Northern Ireland has stolen your careers <laughs> for the graduating class. Oh my god. Um. Um. It's changing now. Now that the four eight one law law has sort of ch- changed focus back towards the producer, um, but there would have been a general sense around that the Irish film film the Southern Irish film business was a wing of the financial services industry, mm-hmm. not really a, a film business. That there was a ton of it driven by the the tax. And the tax write-off, um, and so co-producers here, co-producing from outside, um, were being being led about. You know, it's almost as if it really didn't matter what the film was. You're filming the deal, so that's the sort of like that's a negative international perception mm. of 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 it. Uh, on a on a micro level, individuals, individual producers, and individual deals and individual films aren't. Aren't, aren't like that, but that's the sort of I would say the the wider um, perception of it. And so when you got uh, your question was asking about sort of you know Irish film, um, is that in a sense if if the if the deal is more important than the film, then what why do you bother developing the story etc. and all that? So that I'm saying that's the sort of those bigger issues. But on an individual level, that's not true. Mm. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of really good dedicated producers and very good creative producers down down here. Um, uh, we're also coming on the back back wave of of a, a big culture of a media program in Europe that was trying to um, educate, collaborate, and uh, train train the industry in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort that culture sort of faded a bit, 
but I'd say a key sense of how many of the um, the top level producers here have progressed has been been led by a, that European co-production model. Yeah, yeah, being pushed by those directives. Yeah, and, and you can understand why. I mean, you know, there's canoes that need to be paddled politically as well to get people in and to keep them in, so you can understand that. But I guess it's it's always been econo- economic, you know, um, in terms of making money, and it's no different anywhere else, I guess. But yeah, you 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 wonder whether we we could be stronger together, you know, in in lots of ways. Uh, yeah, well, I've had you know one of the honeymooners was one of the first sort of co-productions between so it was Samson Films, David Collins and Martina Nyland, and okay. a debut feature by Carl Golden, shot half here and half in the north. Which you produced? Co- I was the co- co-producer. Northern co-producer, yeah, um, and funded out of um, TV Three and completion money out of the Irish Film Board. Um, and done for an extremely uh, tight budget and done, I think we shot in less than 20 days and um, Carl had you know, was very, very desperate to get a film made and sort of took some of the dogma ideas on board mm-hmm. um, natural light and limited crew and things like that and I'd come from that tradition in, in making shorts and um, so I knew what was what was required, how to do it short, do it tight and fast. Yeah, yeah. So like shoot, I think it might have been eighteen days. It might have been three six day day weeks. Um, uh, and you just shoot the hell out of everything, you know, multiple cameras and stuff. We did another one a couple of years later in ten days. Um, a horror movie shot in one location. Um, and I, I really enjoy those sort of um, things. It was a really intense to just get in, shoot the, the hell cha- out the of challenge it. of it. Just get in, get it done, box it off, get out. You don't have time to think, so therefore you're not making mistakes because you're not overthinking. I guess. Yeah, and you can, and you know, and you can make it for, you know, with five or six people, everyone on, on multitasking, and um, you build a really nice fam- family atmosphere around it. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes you know, there's some problem with the economics of film is the hugeness of it. That you know you just can't do it without fifty people. You know. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you're such a wide, uh, big resume. Uh, just having looked over your IMDb uh, before, but uh, one project I want to touch on that's from a few years ago now is the Secret Life of Words. Um, which seems like it was a huge undertaking, um, mm-hmm. and obviously getting to work with somebody like Tim Robbins and um, how did that come about? Um, uh, and as a project, how does that differ in particular in comparison to what you've just described? That run and gun, Dogma ninety five, kind of any which way you can attitude. It w- it was a. F- Straightforward. Um, you shot on an oil rig, right? Yeah, well, that's the only reason I'm involved. So, the practicalities of the film business is like this is a project of which I had no ownership of in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a location scouting issue. So, they knew they needed an oil rig. Okay. Yeah. They were going to go to Mexico, they were going to go uh, all over the world to get an oil rig. 
Belfast, Horn and Wolf, by sheer coincidence, had shipped in two Mexican oil rigs for repair. Just randomly. Well, that's what they do. They, yeah, yeah. They, that's one of their services. So we had two oil rigs sitting tied up on the side of Horn and Wolf. Now, it's still 70 feet in the air, so it may as well be in the sea. Mm-hmm. So it was a very straightforward deal. They wanted to come. They needed some people on the ground. So you get get in um, as producer locally, but with no creative input at all. Okay. So very, very unusual. So all the other projects have had some uh, modicum of you know um, creative or financial input. Yeah. And then this one was actually it was fully financed by Focus in the US. So there was was no no need to bring any UK money into it at all. It was just a straightforward deal. Come in, help us do this. Um, so it was Eldesayo, who was Pedro Motivar, and his brother, who were the exec producers, mm-hmm. and um, Esther Garcia, who's the long-standing producer of Almodovar. Um and an amazing uh, Spanish director called Isabel Cochette, um, whose previous film was um, My Life Without Me, with uh, Sarah Polly and um, um, Debbie Harry. So Isabel shoots her own stuff. She has bungee cords um, on her on the camera as a, a form of like steady cam. Yeah. She basically first ADs it herself, uh, writes and directs. Uh, she's a full-on auteur. And it was an amazing bunch of people. Julie Christie, uh, in one of her penultimate roles. Um, uh, that was a dream come true for me, because uh, she's amazing. But you're working with you know top-level stars um, and... You know, fifty Spanish crew and twenty-five Irish crew, and you have to get them in and off an oil rig. You know, every day. Yeah. It's um. From an, yeah, it sounds like a bit of a nightmare logistically. Well, I always love the logistics, the producing side. I love those logistics, especially in the low-budget stuff where you're you've got to do things. Um, you know, define your creativity. Um, I, like as a producer, I, I didn't realize until I really started producing that there was so much creativity in it. I always thought producers were the complete pawn scum, arseholes, just dealt with money. Mm-hmm. But more I got into it, more I got into understanding my own sense of the, the creative development of the story and the team and stuff. But then bring a lot of creativity to problem solving and not throwing money at things. So we didn't have money. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, how do you do things without... People normally come on a film and go, we have a problem, we're going to cost five grand. And I would say, no, hold on a second, what can we do? What else can we do? Yeah. So that's sort of problem-solving things. So this was a film which it was it was a lot of logistics for um, unreasonable money, but still tight. And the logistics got down to, even to the extent of... Um, on an oil rig, you discover that it's all run by generators. It's all, all there's fridges for everything, and they all, all make different noises. Yeah, so a lot. Of, yeah. Right, it's not a studio. Yeah, no sound. Yeah, right. sound would have been an issue. So we had to build a schedule 
based upon the requirements of the sound in communication with the team on the oil rig about which generators they could turn off for which hours and which fridges, uh, etc. What technical equipment of theirs that were making noises yeah, could be turned like a off. Fucking nightmare. And, <laughs> well, I have to say, I'm very pleased that uh, Sound Recorders won an Oscar for his work, or not an Oscar, a Spanish Oscar. Um, uh, and he absolutely deserved it because, yeah, you, you see, the thing that you normally don't do is worry about the sound so much. Yeah. You know, you do, but to actually have to build a schedule around it was quite an amazing thing. And then just the idea, like you're 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 creaned on and off. Um, so it's a, it's the military operation of a of a film set that you've really got to bring to bear on something of that scale. And uh, yeah, we did it. It was it was fun. Afterwards, I always go. I, I think I can do anything now because we've you know we've done done the almost impossible, mm. and it's a lovely film as well. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I'll, I'll check it out. Um, yeah, I just want to ask you about your you, you you've obviously been involved in a, a BAFTA winning production. Um, just want to ask you a little, a little bit about that and the experience of the recognition of that. What that means um, to you, if it means anything, is it what you thought it would be? Well, I, when I was describing being in the audience, so as a kid, the BBC was one of my parents. Basically, you know, they, they brought me up, and the, the quality of the work, well, it was, um, you know, children's television, and they had tons of children's drama. Mm-hmm. And it really connected with me, and it was tough and political and funny and just really high quality. Asking questions, yeah. Yeah. So after a while of making some shorts in Belfast, the BBC called me up and offered me a gig to to do some stuff. Uh, we like what you do, and can you come and do some for us? And it was like, oh wow, this is like, and I felt like. Uh, it was just a privilege to go around. I'm going to be doing what I saw as a kid. And so I'm going to make these films for kids in exactly the same way, way that I make everything else. Hire the same people. And I'm just going to work as if they're, we're, we're not patronising them. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. And um, so it was a lovely little series of things inspired by true stories, but a series of dramas. Mm-hmm. And shot with the te- same team of people, the same DPs, and the same costume and makeup and all that we were making our shorts and the, and the features on, and a bunch of writers and directors that I wanted to work with. And the BBC would come back and look at the scripts and look at the edits and say things like, "Yeah, go harder." And they were really political films, like they were really hard hit- hitting politically. Okay. Uh, one one of them was about the physical abuse of children and and the the law around that, and we really stuck it to Paul Boutang, who was the um, Labour government minister at the time, mm-hmm. um, and we got a call saying you're nominated for a couple of Baftas and um, the awards are on this date. Come along, black tie, etc. <laughs> uh, there's another Colin McKeown who's a producer in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. And he's big friends with um, the team from Mersey Television, who were sitting on the table beside me. So when the award was announced, <laughs> I didn't hear my name. <laughs> it. 
the finally my table told me to stand up, but the Mersey te- te- television table shouted, "Sit down! It's not you." <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, and the other bizarre thing is, um, you hear the television announcement as you're walking up, so you can hear the announcer going, "You know, this is Vincent's second BAFTA, but it's only Colin's first. And it's like you think you're in a, you know, in another world. I couldn't really speak, Vincent did all the speech and um, he said everything that was that was relevant um, uh, but it was just a real privilege because yeah. it was like I've done something uh, of value and yeah. I've, I've, I'm being recognised for that yeah but not in, a, in a, not in a big ego way in a way of like this is genuinely really good material and um, and uh, you know all, all I wanted to know is that it would affect one one other kid that it, that could give them the experience I had as a kid of connecting to it and learning something and have a sense of like of hope. You mm-hmm. know, that so uh, yeah, um, it's um, it's a it's a, pr- a privilege to do. And uh, most of the other work that I do, ninety percent of the films I've made and. Um, regardless of genre you're going to take a lot of time to do it and if they're funded it's a lot of money you know more money than some people see in their lifetimes you know mm-hmm. uh, I don't mean as the salary but the totality of it you know you want to believe that what you're doing makes an, has value and makes an impact and um, like even if it's if it's a, horror movie or it's a comedy you mm. want to know that it make it that it that it's wor- worth doing and it's going to work with an, an audience mm-hmm. one of my favorite films is Sullivan's Travels it's just the sto- story of a Hollywood producer or director during the um, the depression okay. and he makes comedies and he decides that he has to go out into the real world and see what's really happening and make a film about the reality of everything uh, that comedy's not worth it anymore. Long-winded story, I said, go and watch it sometime, but the mm-hmm. lovely punchline to it is that he ends up in a prison um, and it's cinema night <laughs> and they watch comedies and all the people in the prison are laughing their heads off and he suddenly realises the value even of of com- com- comedy and the way it, it can give people a different experience. Yeah. So levity, you know, more more so than more often than not. Um, so yeah, that's a lovely high, uh, and it sounds very humbling, which is really nice to hear. That it's you know it's a sincere experience um, to be recognised. I get to nod in that way. Uh, now some lows. Okay. <laughs> um, we took we've touched on this in a couple of other podcasts as well. Um, you know, you know the, you know the highs are obviously great when they come along, and you know they make all these other bad experiences worthwhile. But uh, how do you, because everybody, regardless of experience or success, uh, encounters um, rejection, for example, or <clears throat> um, you know, how do you how do you cope number one with rejection, but also how 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 do you bounce back if you if you've been working on something and it doesn't go the way you want it to go? There's two two parts at the beginning. Yeah. 
the beginning of the career is all rejection okay? mm. until there's the first yes okay so what I used to do was pin every rejection letter on the wall right so I just kept every rejection letter that came in I'd pin, pin it on top until there was a massive sheaf, sheaf of them and then one day there was a yes. Right? <laughs> so it, it, it was just not not a not wallpaper of the wall, but just one thing where you pin each the one on top one, of the, the one, one, on top of a little pin board and um, take it off that way we've, we've had that. Um like I think we have to remember that there's a limited amount of money. Right? Mm-hmm. Um as filmmakers on one side we forget to empathize with the finance people. Finance people only have a limited amount of money, right? So they only say yes 10% of their time. Mm-hmm. Actually, in development and in, in film funding, your job is to say no, right? That's mm-hmm. what you're technically across the time, like 90% of your time is no. It's damage limitation. And often what the mistake is that people are don't realize that that's what their job is. And don't say no quick enough, and they keep people dragged along, right? Yeah. So, but that's their fundamental misunderstanding of their own job. One thing I say to younger pe- people starting out is, if you're in a meeting and you hear the words "What else are you working on?" that means no. <laughs> right. The thing we've been talking about, for the, right? I, but I'm I cannot say no. Yeah. So. Um, I, the way I dealt with the re- rejection was to, was to 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 know that there's only going to be one deal, yeah. yeah. So like you reflect on on an on, on on say fifty actors going for a part, there is only one part, yeah. Mm-hmm. One person will get it. So as an actor, you have to understand that you're not get getting it, and there's actually nothing you can do to get it, right? That person is given it. Do you know, see the distinction? Mm. Yeah. So the same with the finances that there is only ten percent of projects that are going to get financed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's about doing everything within your own power to get through the no's. Yeah. To get further up the pecking order of no's. Yeah. yeah. So you're only doing what your ultimate goal is to get finance and get the film. Mm-hmm. But you go through a thousand possible stumbling blocks. So, uh, like I, I always bring it back into the here and now of what is the objective now, right? So the one line pitch, its job is to get a meeting. Mm-hmm. That's all it's about. Yeah, that's not making the film. It's can I get a meeting? And then in the meeting, it's the longer piece to get another meeting. Right, because you're not getting here's your check and your contract now. No. Yeah. So you break it down into the small obstacles with a dedicated focus. This is so that you don't get a no. You get to the next stage each time. That's how I, I build it up. So no, yeah. So <laughs> people need to strategize to tick boxes and to know what what it is that they're aiming for and be realistic about it. And what, there's no home runs when yeah. you walk in the door. Well, you always got to understand what the other person's 
objective is as well. And yeah. also to empathise the idea that they spend most of their time saying no. That's a really key one. If you understand that that's what, that's what they have to get to quickly, yes. is no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, yeah. So, um, like rejection in, in project financing um, is you'll only find, you only ever find one home for it. It's very rare that there's like multiple, everyone's chasing you for it. Mm-hmm. So you're going all the way along. It's like going to be a marriage and how do you find the right, right team that's going to, and you want someone that's compatible with it. But also... I genuinely believe um, that the financier buys it. There's really not much you can do to sell. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they choose to buy it in the 10% of the... Well, it's a market stall, isn't it? You know, you present it and they'll pick the best fruits that are available in, in whatever order they want. And, and all you can do is really make sure that your, you know, your wares are... Of a quality that you think they might like. Yeah, well, there's tons of ec- of skills that you got to pick up. Like I, I, I tell right young writers all the time. And you also teach as well. Yeah, that that you have to remember that until you sign a contract to someone else mm-hmm. as a, who's going to produce it, you are the producer, and so you need to think of yourself as the producer of it until that moment comes when you sign the rights over to somebody else and perform and act as the producer of it as opposed to the writer of it. Um, And what's been fantastic with the move in the last 20 years of executive producer writers and showrunners and television, slowly that's coming into, into feature films. And we have always had a problem in feature films from the birth of cinema that the writer is at the bottom instead of the top. Yeah. Yeah, you'll notice that a lot of, um, particularly some people that I know who are writing for television, they're very much adapting that idea of them being their own creative entity and a showrunner of their piece. They're not writers. And they're obviously detaching themselves more from their babies as well in order to get to a point where it's a relay race. I've worked really hard on this. It's fucking great. We've done lots of work on lots of different levels on this. You need to take this from us now. As opposed to, I'm a writer, I'm a lowly writer. You feel sorry for me, I've written something excellent, nobody loves it. I spend most of my time in the pub complaining about it. Think, yeah, so I guess think more about an overall package and um, yeah, making the, the the product I guess as viable on as many levels as possible, yeah, and, also, and producing uh, it. Yeah, and not because you're you're not the passive victim then of waiting for everybody else. You're driving that process, and I think lots more writers should become executive producers in films as well. Yeah, uh, um, that that culture should really develop because the heart of of the film is the script. You know, it is a director's medium, yeah, yeah. but it's still the heart of it is the script, and that's what the audience are going the story so that like when I talk about my my own childhood of connecting as the audience I still absolutely love sitting in the movies and I still love sitting in uh, films that I've been involved in Uh, over the years I've seen like good vibrations um, yeah I was going to bring it up I've seen I've seen probably three four times a year with large audiences and I 
just it it's great to feel it mm-hmm. um like one still in a short one liner and a very short verbal pitch we're doing the campfire right it's mm-hmm. like thousands of years of humanity sitting around telling stories those stories survived because of things that are inherent in them and i, th- I think of them as uh, little viruses right so the images of say jack and the giant beanstalk right <laughs> i remember it because of the gi- giant beanstalk mm-hmm. and then i can recreate in my mind the rest of the elements of the story f- from from key images yeah so like if you ever g- g- meet a friend who's just been to see the latest film and they'll tell you it mm-hmm. and they'll tell you it really well <laughs> and you'll get the feeling of it yeah. So, like a verbal pitch for a story of a script is 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 the same sort of thing, and for me, it's always about how you make it. Well, you, the you, certain practice you bring to it that make that makes it more infectious. Yeah, I guess finding the kernel of 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 the magic. But how do you quantify something like that? You know, I mean, what what makes a good film? You know. If it passes on, that's what I think. If people want to see it again, mm-hmm. and if the kernel of the story is infectious in some way, and that usually boils down to being extremely memorable and meaningful in some way. Through repetition from stock stories? or nah, Well, the, or the, there is works? genuinely... I genuinely believe we only have five or six core core stories everything's elaboration of it um but for me it's it's about the connecting with the audience and also getting my own ego out of the way because my ego will get will will want to do all manner of flashiness things and be cool and and all that and if you get that out of the way and you listen to what like i i think of the story as an organism on its own outside of me yeah. That 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 you just happen to get access to. It. <laughs> so if you if you can get rid of your own, you know, you hear about people controlling their characters. When their characters are alive, they're running about doing their own stuff, and it's surprising. And those are the best moments when you suddenly go, "I have no idea what this character's going to do," you know. Um, and th- I think that's one of the practices, like to get to listen to your own gut instinct that you aren't really in control of. Yeah. And and. The more you do that, the more honest and true the story is, and that's what people connect with. Okay, have you any kind of general tips for writers starting out, or um, this this could drag us down another avenue for another forty five minutes? But the key the key one is what is the definition of a writer? Mm-hmm. They write. Okay. Yeah, it's daily exercise of your muscles and a very there's like art art and craft you know there's a, there's the real business craft piece of what a screenplay looks like and a, how a film will work but there's a practice of the daily lift weightlifting of gut instinct just and i i teach by getting people to vomit draft uh two pages every day for about six weeks just get it out you know you've no idea what the story is just write like literally physically right not typing it has to be hand, handwritten and it's a real muscle mm-hmm. 
Um, and so it's like how you find your voice by surrendering up and practicing your gut instinct. And that's about just vomiting out. Because your, your brain is going to tell you not to write. And your brain is also going to tell you that it's a pile of shit. Yeah. Mm. It's going to keep constantly stopping you. And you have to get through the barrier of that, of just write, 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 write. Mm. And the difference between successful writers and everybody else is that they have written. <laughs> That's simple. It is simple as that. Yeah. yeah. Out of every, I was getting probably 200 to 300 scripts a year for a while. And it break down roughly um, 5% of them are written in crayon. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, that is just like okay. Send send that straight to the bin. Five percent are just genius, mm-hmm. and then the cream of the crop are whoa, this is really really good, and then about fifty percent percent of the scripts are yeah, yeah, okay, that's that's okay. Because if someone sat down and written 90 pages, they've thought about it a long time, and it's probably not their first draft of it either, and it's probably not their first attempt at writing something. Mm. So the vast majority of people who actually get it down on paper have got something. Now, whether or not they have the skills, the talent, the determination to continue with it is another matter. Mm-hmm. But that's how I would say it is very... Very few amazing geniuses, and there's very few complete lunatics, you know. Um, but you owe it to yourself to practice it on a daily basis. Yeah, it's a muscle that needs to be flexed. We could go on all day and all night. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a good place to leave, I think, for tonight. No um, thanks for taking the time Thank you. To, Privilege. to have a, a chin wag with us. We really appreciate it on, on the rap chat. Um, so yeah um, continued success and thanks a million for having me All right. thank you God bless you sir Ramada. keep her lit <laughs>